prior to 2014, my guess is that very few of us were familiar with the city named Ferguson, Missouri. For most of our people in our nation, the city of Ferguson, Missouri was not a very well-known city. It's about the size of Brownsburg, Indiana, about 21,000 people. It's in the St. Louis County area. But on August 9th, that all changed. After the fatal shooting of Michael Brown by a Ferguson police officer, there were two weeks of protests, riots, and altercations with police. As a result, Ferguson is no longer in our country just the name of a city. It's a metaphor, a painful metaphor for deep divisions that still exist along ethnic lines and challenges related to the role of law enforcement in our culture. Ferguson became a a tipping point in the conversation about racism, about lingering inequality, about frustrating cultural bias that many African Americans still feel. And it became the tipping point for the discussion about the role of police officers who are being asked to do more and more and more to address cultural problems that they can't solve in and of themselves. And who are being viewed and treated sometimes unfairly by the public. Then in April 2015, Freddie Gray was arrested on the streets of Baltimore, Maryland, and after his suspicious death a few days later, protests began. And throughout the month of April, there were both nonviolent protests and violent clashes with police along with the burning of multiple buildings. And then this summer, we witnessed the intentional targeting and killing of five white police officers in Dallas after videos surfaced of officer-involved shootings of two black men in Minneapolis and Louisiana who were killed by white police officers. This is just three snapshots, and I could go on, but I'm sure I don't need to convince you that what I'm going to address today is loaded and important. The topics of race, policing, injustice, inequality and perceptions, they they dominate the weekly news cycle, and they are what our people are talking about, and they are what we feel, no matter what background or what ethnicity or what your role is. So here's my question. How does a follower of Jesus think about these things? How does the church respond? How does our church respond? What are, what are Christians supposed to do in this season? And, and then how does the gospel relate to these deeply felt challenges? These are some of the things that I'm going to try and address today from Colossians chapter three. But before I do, let me give you some qualifiers. First, I do not presume to think that one sermon is going to solve all the issues that we face. The challenges in our society are deep, they are long-standing, they are complicated, and so please know that I am not trying to oversimplify very deep, very historic, and very complex issues. Second, I also do not presume to know every perspective on the issues as it relates to race or to issues related to policing in our society. I have no idea what it is like to be an African American in today's culture. 
I don't feel what a black woman or black man feels when a racial barrier is felt, again, or when someone makes an insensitive racial statement, or someone makes an outright racist statement, or when there is just this feeling of inadequacy projected from someone to you who's in majority culture. I have no idea what that's like. Nor do I understand what it's like to be a police officer in our culture today. I never kiss my wife goodbye wondering if I'll not come home. I never think about whether I'm gonna have to choose between my life and the life of another human being. I don't have to deal with constantly wondering if a person is going to love me or hate me or attack me, and I'm not approaching this sermon as if I understand everything about what it means to be an African American or what it means to be a police officer. Third, I am sure that you will find my sermon lacking in some way. From your experience, from your background, from your perception, you may not feel like I deal with things completely or as fairly as you would want. And so if there's any misstep, if there's any mistake and nuance, anything you think is unbalanced, please give me grace. Our African-American brothers and sisters in this church have been very gracious to me over the last eight years when I have accidentally been less than sensitive or nuanced as I needed to be. It took me, I think, two weeks before I understood that we needed to pray about Ferguson. And it wasn't until an African-American brother said, Mark, are we gonna pray about this? So I'm grateful for patience. Our police officers have also been kind when I've not always fully understood the issues in play and perhaps when I've viewed them through an overly simplistic lens. So no, I'm trying my best to be careful, trying to be clear, but I'm also trying to be compassionate. And then fourth, despite all these qualifiers, I want you to know that I approach this heavy topic with hope in my heart and a burning passion for us to talk about this. Because here's why. Because I think the church has a role to play in the cultural pain and the divisions that we have faced for many years and continue to face. And I also believe that the gospel is so compelling, so beautiful, and so transforming that it does something amazing in our lives. Personally, it has the power to do something amazing in our church, and it has the power to do something amazing in our culture. So Sunday, so this Sunday, I come with hope, trembling hope, nervous hope, anticipatory hope, longing for God to do something in all of us today. So my hope is that you would humbly ask the Lord to help you. Lord, help me to understand other people. Teach me what my role is in this conversation. How can I serve my culture? How can I serve my city? How can I serve my state and my nation in these moments? Two of our values as a church are extravagant grace, which means we define as treating others with the same extravagant grace that God has lavished on us, and unity in diversity, which we define as reflecting the indivisible and yet diverse unity of the Father, Son, and the Spirit, participating in the multifaceted kingdom of our triune God. So I want us to live out our core values. I want us to live out the gospel as we consider this topic. My aim for this sermon is for you to understand both the hope of the gospel and the refuge of the church. So the hope of the gospel 
and the refuge of the church, my central thesis is this. The gospel is the hope for healing our cultural divisions, and the church should be a stunning place of refuge from our cultural brokenness. Let me read that again. The gospel is the hope for healing our cultural divisions, and the church should be a stunning place of refuge from our cultural brokenness. So if you're not a follower of Jesus today, if you've not become a believer, what I I hope you'll see is that the gospel has the power to change a heart, and when that heart is changed, deeply rooted divisions can actually come down and be supplanted by something more foundational. I want you to see what Christianity brings to the table when it comes to discussions regarding ethnicity and authority. And then I want you to ask yourself, so what do I do now? Our text is Colossians 3. There's an important context. We're jumping right in the middle of this book Letter is written to a congregation who's trying to find their way forward in the midst of a culture filled with idolatry, with religious pluralism and divisions that were beginning to creep into the church. The church was guilty of casting judgment on one another, and Paul wrote to them in order to recenter this congregation on two things. Number one, the centrality of Christ. Chapter one, he extols the beauty of who Christ is. He points those people toward the preeminence of Jesus. So it's all about Jesus, all about Christ and his rule, his reign, his preeminence. And then secondly, he points them to the Christ-likeness of the Christian community. In other words, if Jesus is like this, then what should the church be like? In other words, if he's extolled as the preeminent one, then what kind of values, what kind of lifestyle, what kind of relationships should characterize the community that bears the name of Christ? As a result, He identifies that the church is supposed to be this counter-cultural community in the midst of a broken community. That the church is a refuge in the midst of all of the brokenness that exists. And so in verses five to 10, Paul describes what should be put to death or what should be put off. And he gives lists of things like, in the ethical categories, put off sexual immorality, put off impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. So so take this moral things, these things that are destroying your lives, destroying culture, destroying your sexuality, and put those things away. And then he talks about things that relate to relationships, like, and also put away anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk and lying to one another. So a Christian community reflects both a, a different ethic and different relationships, And Paul envisions that the gospel then creates this this different kind of culture, this counterculture, and frankly, a culture that is compelling to the world. Or at least it should be. So I want to show you then how the gospel is the hope for healing of these cultural divisions and how the church is to be a refuge from the brokenness of our culture. Show you first how the gospel redeems our divisions Secondly, how it restores our relationships. And third, how the gospel rules our lives. Number one, how does the gospel redeem our divisions? So after all of that introduction, Paul in verse 11 says, here, 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 here. Here there is not Greek, Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. What does he mean here? Well, previously in verse 10, he says, you've put on the new self. And what's characterized by this new self? What has Christ done for these people? They're they're being renewed in the image, or rather in the knowledge, after the image of its creator. 
So what Paul's gonna do here is he's gonna point to something that's underneath everything. And so therefore, he says that the church should be marked by a category or a foundation that's underneath even the most prevalent and the most divisive categories that culture has. And so he lists them. He says, here, here, the church, the body of Christ, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free. Then he says this, but Christ is all and in all. So he's getting underneath these these deeply held divisions, these these generation-long demarcations of groups of people, these these categories that were were loaded with pain, loaded with struggle, loaded with misunderstanding, loaded with animosity. He identifies that Jew and Greek, there's 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 an ethnic division, and then circumcised and uncircumcised, there's a religious division, and then barbarian and Scythian, there's a cultural division, and socioeconomic, there's slave and free. And what what Paul is identifying here is that his culture, like every culture, even our culture, views individuals through a tribal lens. And often that lens is filled with an air of superiority on one hand and a frustrating struggle on the other. Even today, if I were to say to you, what does the word barbarian mean? You know what the word barbarian means. It means uncivilized, grotesque, earthy. But you know what barbarian was in Paul's day? A barbarian was simply somebody who wasn't Greek or who wasn't Roman. It was a word used for people who lived in the north, like in modern-day Germany. They were the barbarians. Basically, a barbarian was someone who had a different culture and who was viewed as inferior because he or she was different. So the Germans were called barbarians. Fast forward 1,900 years, and you have the Germans saying the Aryans are the people who should rule the earth, and they begin looking down on everyone else. What's more, Scythian, A Scythian was a particularly uncultured barbarian, like a barbarian of the barbarians. (laughs) And according to F.F. Bruce, a New Testament scholar, interestingly enough, Scythian slaves were the ones who were assigned police duty in Athens. And in certain Greek comedies, they they featured Scythian policemen who were objects of ridicule because of the stereotyping that went along with that because of their uncouth ways and their uncouth speech. So what I want you to see here is that ethnic divisions, racial stereotyping, and minority mistreatment was a part of the culture in which Paul was speaking into as much as it's a part of our culture today. I'm not saying it was better, I'm not saying it was worse, but what I'm saying, it was there. I'm saying that cultural divisions were a part of his culture as they are a part of our culture. And you know why? Because ethnic divisions and racism is not merely a United States problem, it is a human problem. Travel all over the world, you'll see the same thing. You go to Pakistan, you'll find that the Punjabis look down on the Puntas. In India, the Brahmins look down on the Kshatriyas, who look down on the the, the Vaishyas, who look down on the Shudras, and everyone looks down on the Dalits. Now, I say this not to diminish. For our African-American brothers and sisters, 150 years of slavery... I don't say that to diminish segregation. I don't say that to diminish Jim Crow laws and how they played into creating deep divisions in this country. Rather, I say this 
because there are some within the majority culture who believe that there are no longer any racial issues in play in our culture. And what's more, some even think that talking about race only makes things worse. They, they believe that we wouldn't have a race problem if we'd stop talking about race problems. But I would suggest to you that race is always an issue because ethnic divisions are a part of the brokenness, not just of our country, but it's a part of the brokenness of the human race. It was an issue in Paul's day, and it's an issue in our day. So what does Paul do? What does he do with these deeply held divisions? What does he do with these, these, these racial and societal categories? What he does is he talks about what is more foundational for a follower of Jesus. So he says that Christ is all and in all. He takes those big categories, which are filled with so much emotion and so much pain and so much history and so much past, and these deeply divided, deeply rooted divisions, and he gets underneath it. And he says, but Christ is all and in all. What happens is that the gospel gets underneath our broken categories and it unites people from all walks of life into one body. So the Greek, the Jew, the slave, the free, now they're one and they're one in a way that is completely countercultural. And this isn't the only place that the Bible says this. Look at 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews, Greeks, slaves, free, all were made to drink of one spirit. So this is the way, church, that the gospel redeems our divisions. It creates a reality and a unity that can get underneath all other categories. Or think of it as a category that, that, that gets above all other categories. And so the hope of the gospel is that you see more than the color of a person's skin. That you see in the gospel more than their socioeconomic status or what tribe they're from or what particular role they have in our community. The, the hope of the gospel is that you could see a brother or sister in Christ who happens to be white, or happens to be black, or happens to be Asian, or happens to be Latino. You see a brother or sister in Christ who happens to be a protester. You could see a brother and sister in Christ who happens to be a police officer. You see, the hope of the gospel is that you would be, in the body of Christ, seen as a brother or sister first. Is that the lens through which you see people? Are you willing on the one hand to acknowledge that race is still a real dividing line at many levels because of the brokenness that is part of the world? And yet, are you also willing to see how the gospel has the potential to change how we look at one another and what we see? By getting underneath this category and saying that Christ is all and in all, Paul is asserting that the gospel has the ability to do something that I don't think anything else in the world can do, which is to change the human heart that then makes you see someone differently and love them differently, and he provides a category underneath all other categories. And I don't know any other thing in the world that has the potential to do this. Doesn't mean it's been done perfectly, doesn't mean it's all done even now, but I think the gospel has the power to get underneath these really deep categories. Secondly, the gospel not only redeems our divisions, but it restores our relationships. So 
moving from the sort of propositional and positional realities, now we see that the gospel sets up the potential for new relationships. So he says in verse 12, put on, it's a, a verb form that means be who you really are. It's not the idea of simply putting it on like you're supposed to do it over and over and over, but the idea is this, you're a different kind of person, now act like it. Wear the clothes that fit who you really are. He says, as God's chosen ones, as holy, as beloved, see, these are the new categories that God is establishing, the, the kind of categories that only God can do, that he's the one who chose you, he's the one who through Christ made you holy, he's the one who loves you, and these categories get underneath everything. This is what the church essentially is built on. This is how the church culture then becomes different than the broken culture around us. Because underneath our standard definitional categories in our culture is another category that serves to supplant deeply held divisions and then restore relationships. Notice how. He then says, since you're God's chosen ones, holy, beloved, what does he say to put on? Here's what we're to put on. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other. What do these words mean? Compassionate hearts, the word means a deep concern for others. It means that you feel tender sympathy toward someone else in what they feel. If you were raised on an old school translation, King James, it renders it bowels of mercy. Why bowels? Nobody says that. Man, my bowels, I'm feeling for you, man. No, no one, <laughs> nobody, nobody uses that language. But what, what, the reason is the Greek was an actual word for bowels, for intestines. And the idea is this, I'm sick to my stomach over what you're sick to your stomach about. I feel what you feel. I mourn what you mourn. I ache what you ache over. I feel it, I feel it so deeply in me that my insides Hurt for you. That's what compassionate hearts means. And it's the first word that he uses. It's the first thing. Compassionate hearts that I ache. And then he says kindness. The word means generosity. It means unreasonable understanding. Like the people would go, man, are you a good listener. And generosity. The word humility. It means that we know our position in life. We know who God is. We know who we are. And we have appropriate assessment of who God is and who we are. It means the opposite of pride, the opposite of self-centeredness, the opposite of egocentrism, and the opposite of ethnocentrism. If we're all made in the image of God, then where in the world do we ever get the notion that one particular people group is somehow superior than another? Meekness, the best definition I know, is power under control. And again, this is how we're to relate one another. It means a willingness to be gentle, a willingness to be deferential, a willingness to listen carefully, a willingness to not react when you're misunderstood. It means to be self-controlled. Patience it means to put up with exasperating conduct without flying into a rage or desiring to get even. Again, the King James Old Translation says long-suffering. It means you don't walk into conversations and go, here we go again. 
Bearing with one another, forgiving each other. These are words that go together. They simply mean putting up with one another, giving each other lots of grace, believing the best, wiping away accounts of grievances, covering things in sin, having a disposition towards reconciliation. It means that you have dropped your guard, you've wiped the chip off of your shoulder, and you've silenced your argumentative spirit. And then above all, Paul says, love. Above all, put on love, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Why love? Love because it is the greatest of all Christian virtues. It is the summary of the law in Galatians 5. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, according to 1 Corinthians 13. Love was to be the signature mark by which the world would know who Jesus' disciples really were, that how they loved one another. You see what he's getting at? He's saying that in the midst of this broken culture where there are these deep divisions like Jew and Greek and Scythian and barbarian and slave and free, there is this category underneath and the way in which these people relate to one another that somehow makes the world look at them and go, what in the world? What's happened here? And the answer is Christ. Christ is all and in all. And as a result, we have compassionate hearts, we have kindness, we have mercy. So despite all these differences, all these divisions that mark our culture, here's what a gospel-saturated people are supposed to be like. So let me ask you, let me press this. So in the midst of a culture filled with division and misunderstanding, is your first step a compassionate heart? It's your first step to listen and to weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn. Is your first step to be a James 1 kind of person that is quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger? Or are you quick to fall into the ditches that just plague our conversations and our culture? Are you quick to fall into the ditch of race blindness that says race is never an issue? Or to fall in the other ditch of race baiting that says that race is always the issue? And as a result, you've got people who are just missing one another in conversations, missing one another in perceptions. Will you, will you move towards those who are different than you? Will you be the kind of person, and will we be the kind of church that's marked by compassion, not assumptions, not animosity, and not apathy? Will you resist the temptation to lump all police officers into a broad category? Will you resist the temptation to lump all white people into a category, all black people into a category? And will we be the kind of church that weeps with those who weeps? The kind of church this first step is a compassionate heart. The first step that holds and hugs and says, I don't understand, I don't even know what to do with this, but because you hurt, I hurt. And because of this pain, I will walk with you with this pain, and I will keep my mouth shut, and I will silence my Facebook page, and I will put away my hashtag, and I will just simply say, brother or sister, let me weep with you, because I hurt because you hurt. H.B. Charles said this, the Bible exhorts us to weep with those who weep. It doesn't tell us to judge whether or not they should be weeping. Let me give you an example. Let me press this. In June, I heard a talk by Micah Edmondson, who is a black pastor in Grand Rapids, Michigan. He gave a talk to the national leaders of the Gospel Coalition on the subject of race in the United States. The topic of his talk, it's online, you can listen to it, was, is Black Lives Matter the New Civil Rights Movement? 
Here's what Micah Edmondson, pastor in Grand Rapids, Michigan, said. My wife has to beg me, a 37-year-old man, not to go out to Walmart at night because she's afraid not of the criminal element, but because she's afraid of the police element. Because she knows that when the police see me, they aren't gonna see Micah Edmondson, pastor of New City Fellowship Presbyterian Church. When they see me, they aren't gonna see Micah Edmondson, PhD in systematic theology. When they see me, they're gonna see me as a black man out late at night, and she knows we're getting stopped at 10 times the rate of everybody else, arrested at 26 times the rate of everyone else, and killed at five times the rate of everyone else. Black Lives Matter can see the injustice in those statistics. How can Black Lives Matter see the value of a black life better than we can? Why, he said, does Black Lives Matter care more about the value of my life than you do? And he was talking to us pastors. Now, I know that's a loaded quote. Where did your heart go when I read you that quote? Did you gravitate towards the statistics? Did you think, oh, come on, where'd you get those stats from? Like, prove that. 26 times, what are you talking about? Did you gravitate towards his reference to Black Lives Matter and then begin to offer your argument and critique of that particular movement? Did you hear his comment about being afraid of the police element and then think, no, 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 that's ridiculous. Or were you able to cut through all of that and feel for an African-American pastor in Grand Rapids, Michigan, whose wife is afraid for him to go to Walmart because of how he might be perceived? What is your first step? Do his comments make you wanna understand and hear why he feels that way? Or do you immediately wanna argue with him and debate him? Do you have a compassionate heart for his experience and his pain, or is your first step to police his pain? Is your first step to have a compassionate heart to be filled with meekness and to be filled with patience? Look, I'm not saying that discussions about statistics or social movements like Black Lives Matter and policing are are off the table. I'm not saying that at all. But what I'm saying is that part of the problem is so often we come to this particular topic and our first step is not compassionate hearts. Our first step is not being quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to get irritated. And I'm going to tell you that is not just a racial problem. That is a human problem. No matter what your ethnicity, what your background, what your role in our community, a follower of Jesus is to be marked by compassion, kindness, humility, and patience. And yet so often, no matter what your background, what your ethnicity, we have deeply held perceptions and arguments that seem so right to us because they are a part of the narrative of our tribe of people. And you begin to believe, because I've been raised and I've heard this narrative over and over and over, and all the people who look like me and are around me have the same narrative, that this narrative must be true. Let me give you an example. This is a personal one. When I was in seminary, I worked as an admissions counselor for the undergraduate college associated with my seminary. And part of my role, part of my territory, included inner city Grand Rapids. And part of my responsibility was to meet with urban African-American pastors and talk with them about how we could get their students at our predominantly white college. 
One day I was meeting with a wonderful evangelical African-American pastor. He was a leader in the city, and we were having a conversation in his office about how we could get students to come to our school. And in the context of that, we were having discussions about the challenges, the real challenges that African-American kids faced and the things that served as the barriers toward their success in society. And he made a a comment about these societal challenges and the lack of opportunities for African Americans. And immediately, as a 27-year-old, I pushed back. I'm in this guy's office. And I pushed back, and I pushed back with my familiar narrative. And I said this, wait a minute. My grandfather came to this country in the 40s from the Netherlands, unable to speak a lick of English with five children. He worked himself to death carrying garbage to make a life for his children. This country is filled with opportunity. That was the narrative of my school, of my church, of my friends. And he sighed and said, Mark, but the difference is between your grandfather and mine is that he would likely have been hired in the 1940s because he was white. And my grandfather would have likely never been hired for the same job. And think of the difference that that makes. His words broke my heart because I knew he was right and I had never had that thought, never. It never had crossed my mind. And I began weeping in his office. It moved me to tears. I began, I was a mess, crying in his office. And the African-American coworker I was with looked at the pastor and she said, what's going on here? (laughs) And he said, our brother just saw something he's never seen before. And he was right. So part of the challenge And regardless of your ethnicity, is that compassion, kindness, and patience are not more frequently our step. I gotta think through, given my background, how I take that first step, and so do you, regardless of your background, your ethnicity, or what your role or station is in life. Paul said this in Romans 12, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another, never be wise in your own sight. Why? Because the gospel informs what it means to see ourselves and our world differently, that we weep with those who weep. So I've talked with police officers who are weary and they're nervous. They're weary of trying to hold back the tide of brokenness in our culture. They are weary of being accused of doing something that's racially motivated and they're nervous because every day they are faced with very serious decisions and very high stakes. They are nervous that someone could make an unfair accusation or someone will second guess a split second decision made in the chaos of trying to help our state, our city, or our nation. And my question is, will you listen to them? Will you hear? Or will you write them off as just part of the, the problem that exists within our world? Or will you embrace them? And will you pray for them? I've talked with African-American church members who love this church. In the context of covenant renewal, I called people who wrote in their box of comments that I'm struggling with racial challenges, and so I talked with brothers and sisters in our church. There are people in our church who 
If someone doesn't talk to them, sit in an ABF class all by themselves and no one reaches out to them and it happens week after week, if someone looks at them a particular way, they, they wonder, and sometimes with tears, if it's because they're not a part of the majority culture. Are you gonna argue with them? Are you gonna say that's ridiculous? Or are you gonna grab a hold of them and weep with those who weep and have a compassionate and kind heart? I've talked with white church members who approach this subject with great deal of fear and trepidation because they're so afraid of saying the wrong thing. They don't wanna be perceived as saying something that's racist. They don't wanna avoid the issue, but at the same time, they don't know what to say. And my question is this, will you love or white brothers and sisters when they make a mistake? Will you say it's okay? Will you absorb insensitivity and believe the best? Will you stand with them and pray with them so that we're not missing one another, whether it's a police officer or whether it's a black man or a white woman or a person from a Latino background or Asian or doesn't matter what your background is, that we're not missing one another and instead saying, you know what, before anything else, I'm a follower of Jesus and so are you and this gospel has the power to redeem our divisions and has the power to restore our relationships and because of Jesus, we can see one another differently and we can weep with those who weep. I can watch the news differently, I can see the culture differently and I can mourn what I see and at the same time say, oh, what our world needs is Christ to be in all and through all. So the idea is that the church, both in majority culture and minority culture, meet one another in gospel culture. We come out of our divisions, out of our tribes, out of our experiences, and we have God helping us the ability to be a people whose first step is compassion, whose first step is kindness, whose first step is mercy. And finally, the gospel rules our lives. The last three verses give us hope for the future of this gospel community. It says this, and, this is verse 15, and let the peace of Christ, notice this, rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. The idea is this, God, these divisions are really painful. I'm gonna be thankful that the peace of Christ, although it's hard, can rule and then it says, and let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Why do you need the word? Because the word is the one that helps you understand the categories underneath all the categories. It's the word that helps you understand that Romans 13 says that the officer is a servant who has authority from God. He's to be respected. He's to be honored. And at the same time, it's the Bible also says that there's a category underneath all these other racial categories that the image of God is what makes every single human being valuable to God, regardless of their background, their ethnicity, their race, or their status in life. And it's the Bible that informs both categories. And without the Bible, you will believe your tribal narrative, you will believe your perspective, um, historical narrative, you will believe your family narrative, you will not believe God's narrative. So the Bible must dwell in us richly. And then he goes on and he says, admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. Notice the worship context and whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What that means is this, that when we sing together, 
Right now, when you're listening to a sermon together, you're doing something that is unifying us in a way that is so incredibly beautiful that it is a little taste of the glory that is yet to come. And when we sing together and we worship together, we are acknowledging and confessing that there is one voice and one body and one church together that we are, in effect, admonishing one another. We're singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It means that we are acknowledging and reminding ourselves and celebrating this gospel that gets underneath every other painful category in life. And it's the one category that doesn't nearly destroy all other categories. It gets underneath it and it redeems those categories. So the gospel then is the hope for the healing of our cultural divisions and then the church should be a stunning place of refuge from our cultural brokenness. So this is the vision of this passage and I hope this is something that you embrace deeply within your soul. I hope that you in some small way, and you gotta figure out what that looks like, in some small way, you'll be part of making this church, you'll make the church as a whole a beautiful representation week after week of the body of Christ and that you could be able, with all kinds of other people, say, because of Jesus, in this place, right here, Right here, right now, right here, there is neither black nor white, Asian or Latino, police officer or protester, but Christ is all and in all. And Jesus, friends, has made it possible for that to be a reality. Jesus can overcome the most deepest divisions that mar our culture. And one day, someday, I hope soon, a people from every tribe, nation, and tongue will stand before his feet and say, worthy is the Lamb, because Christ is all and in all. Father in heaven, forgive us with a ditch of thinking that race isn't an issue. Forgive us for thinking that race is every issue. Grant us the grace to have our first step be a compassionate heart, kindness, love, patience. Make us a kind of people who in our assembly together model the beauty of what Christ-likeness is all about. Help us to do that individually. Help us to do that corporately. So come now and seal these truths on our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.